All right, well, welcome back to our series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've spent the last few weeks looking at seven timeless principles that were exemplified by the heroes of our faith. And now the author brings it all to a conclusion in the first verse of chapter 12, where we come to these famous words, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Pointing back to <clears throat> the roll call of faith, a summary of the greatest heroes of Scripture and remembering their deeds of faith in God, the inspired author writes, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us all. There's something in this epic story about us. Yes, in fact, we are the conclusion. We are the result. We are the final chapter. That is, if we faithfully take up our role and live it out. Therefore, since those who have gone before have been so inspiring, let us. Let us what? Well, ultimately, let us finish what they started. Let us complete the epic story of the people of God. Let us walk in a manner worthy of both the author of the story and of those who have gone before. Let us be added to the cloud, if you will, by becoming true witnesses to faith in God like they were. Witnesses. That is what they were. And that is what we are to be. But I'm afraid this word, witnesses, may not quite convey all of the meaning it should in our modern language. The Greek word translated as witnesses here is martus. And as you might guess, it actually means martyrs. More on that in a minute. Please understand that the cloud of witnesses is a reference to those we've been talking about for the last two weeks. The cloud of witnesses are those who made the roll call of faith. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Sarah, Rahab, and all the rest, including those who have been found faithful through thousands of years of human history since then. Remember, at the end of the roll call, room was left for the rest of us. To be added. We came to understand last Sunday that the list was not considered complete by God without us. That's where we left off in this passage. Even when the inspired author of Hebrews sent out this letter 
And even now, 2,000 years later, the list is not complete, though we are completing it. I would say that, as an example, Billy Graham helped complete the list not too long ago when he died. Maybe your grandparents <clears throat> or great-grandparents, or for some of you, your parents, um, helped complete it. And the point is that as people of faith today, you and I have a chance to make the list. Or better said, if we are truly people of faith of God, faith in God and in His Christ, then we are, in fact, making the list. We are being added to the cloud of faithful witnesses. A very prestigious cloud, indeed. But before I... Um, delve further into what this text should mean for us today. I need to spend a minute on what it doesn't mean. Because this is one of those spots in Scripture where if you take it wrong, you can really go off the cliff. I do not believe the writer of Hebrews is attempting to say that these witnesses, perhaps in the millions now, are literally floating around us like ghosts, forming a cloud of spiritual uh, spectators, surrounding us, sort of hanging out above somewhere, either cheering or jeering over our every step. Listen carefully. God is the only one who is omnipresent. God is the only one who is omniscient. He's the God who sees. He is the one who is watching. Only God can be everywhere at once, and he is with us to the end of the age, to the ends of the earth. I need to make sure you understand today that dead people are not here with us. No, they are with Jesus. They are in heaven, those who trusted in him, which, to be clear, is not here. And so as you think about the unseen world around us, the spiritual realm, we must have faith to comprehend. Understand that while the Spirit of God is here and angels are here and sometimes soberingly the devil and his servants may even be here. Listen, Grandma and Grandpa and Abraham and Elijah are not here. They are not hovering over us in a cloud watching. No, again, the Bible is clear in many places that those who have gone on before us are currently at rest in heaven, which cannot possibly be a reference to this atmosphere surrounding us, but rather heaven is a holy other place which existed before this atmosphere was even created. I know this truth is hard to hear for some. But the Bible does not allow for the idea that your dead relatives are hanging out somewhere in the clouds watching over you or checking to see how you are doing. That is actually a pagan belief, common to many other religions, but based on the whole of Scripture. This cannot be what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate with these verses. In fact, the Bible tells us plainly where people go when they die. The Old Testament called that place Sheol. And it was if, as if there were two sections or types, really, of Sheol. In the Old Testament, Sheol is depicted as a really good place for people of faith, but also as a really bad place for people who died in rebellion and disbelief. In the case of those saved by faith, Sheol was understood to be a place of peace 
and rest. A place of conscious existence, a place with God, referred to as Abraham's bosom more than once, a place the New Testament writers called heaven. In the New Testament, we have the added information that believers who die go to be with Jesus. That is to say, they go to be in the place where Jesus currently resides, where he is physically present in this age, which is certainly not a place of this world. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus returns to this earth, all those believers who have died before will come with him in spirit to be reunited with their resurrected and recreated bodies, which will rise from their graves at that time. Bodies remade from the dust, if need be, in order to become immortal and indestructible, fit to live forever in a new heaven and earth, which he will form from the old ones at the end. Now, I'm sure someone is thinking, isn't that all kind of hard to believe? I understand. I'm a skeptic by nature. I have to remind myself of the supernatural that it exists, that it happens. Because I don't see God create planets or stars every day or form things out of dust or bring life from lifelessness. But what I can do is I can look around and I can say to myself, look at all this. Just look at it. And even my logical brain has to grapple with the fact that it all got here somehow in the first place. Something came from nothing at some point. And then I just remember that the God who did it then is still around. So back to the point, what does it mean when our text says we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us? Taking this one phrase too literally, and it really is about the only place that people can jump off to something wrong about this. This one phrase, taking it too literally, some have drifted into an unbiblical viewpoint regarding the dead or the spirits of the dead. We need to keep this statement in context and really see what the writer intends to say. Let me go back to what I mentioned before, that the word translated witnesses here is martus which is most literally translated as our word martyr. The idea of the witnesses or the testimony of these people of faith is clearly connected to the fact that they died believing. They died in faith. In many cases, they died because of faith. They were witnesses, martyrs. The point is that this passage and the conclusion here is actually about what they did not about what they are doing. Our text is not so much saying that these people are currently witnessing us or watching what we are doing, but rather that they are defined as witnesses. That is, people who testify to the identity and power of God by their faith, even in their deaths. And so it's more literally their testimony that surrounds us like a, like a cloud not their spiritual presence. Their witness is what forms a great cloud around us, and their witness is what spurs us on. 
The point in Hebrews 12 is that specifically in their deaths, that is in the fact that they died believing and they died with faith, even though they never saw it all coming true in this life, that in doing so, these faithful men and women bore witness to God in a way that should inspire us. Though they passed on from this place in death, their faith still speaks. Their story still speaks. And taken in total, their public witness is like a great cloud surrounding us with all the reason we need to follow in their steps. <coughs> Indeed, it is because of their faith that the faithful are thankfully no longer trapped within the atmosphere of this fallen and cursed world. They're not forced to power, powerlessly observe its depravity but rather they have gone to be with Jesus in the place that he prepared for them. The point here is that in their departure, they did not leave us with nothing. They left us with an ever-present cloud of testimonial evidence, of stories and beliefs that changed the world. These days, <clears throat> we hear a lot about the cloud in reference to the internet, right? For those who don't know, the cloud in that context is basically online storage where you can back up data of all kinds, pictures, music, documents. And the idea is that if your physical computer or device crashes, the info is still out there to recover because it is in the cloud. This concept of a cloud of information actually fits with the cloud of witnesses metaphor in our text pretty well. Maybe the writer of Hebrews was being prophetic. Because what he's really saying is that there is a cloud of, of data, of stories, a storage place of testimonial evidence, which people of faith have been adding to for millennia. And this cloud of evidence surrounds us, though we can't always see it. The faith of those who have gone before is like a palpable, visible, accessible cloud that surrounds us. And in that cloud, we can find a wealth of encouragement for our faith. Let me sum it up this way. The conglomerate faith of those who journeyed before us is powerful evidence for things unseen. If you've been with me through the last several sermons, hopefully you'll be able to see that statement is actually a summary of the entire passage. One more time. You can go all the way back to 11.1 up to 12.2. And this is the summary. The conglomerate faith of those who journeyed before us is powerful evidence of things unseen. Now let me help you understand why this matters. <clears throat> As a committed Christian today, have you ever felt like a solitary island in a world that doesn't understand? Do you ever feel like the only one? If you're a teenager who follows Christ, you absolutely feel this way, right? I mean, especially for younger people, it's tough to find friends who hold to the truth. And I don't want to feed any martyr syndromes, <laughs> but probably just about all of us who are serious in our faith sometimes feel like the only one really following Jesus. We don't really mean the only one, but we feel like the only one, right, in the moment. The road just keeps getting narrower 
and we just keep sounding weirder. It would seem that every single thing we believe is now considered ignorant at best and abhorrent at worst by the vast majority. Sometimes it seems as if the whole world were against us. Imagine that, the world against followers of Jesus. This is exactly what the Bible tells us to expect. And yet, remember, they aren't the enemy. Or even if you want to think of them the enemy, we're supposed to love our enemies. So love is key here. But it's not easy. I saw a story about an NHL hockey player this week who decided, based on his Christianity, that he could not participate in the gay pride celebrations of his team. He was the only player on the team not to participate in gay pride. Didn't put the rainbow tape on his stick and wear the shirt. He didn't make a statement against, against it or say anything hateful. He simply chose not to celebrate homosexuality with his team. Of course, retribution from the public was swift. They wanted him punished. I'm sure this man felt like the only one, you know? In fact, he actually was the only one on his entire team. Have you ever been in a situation where your Christianity made you feel like the only one? And when does this happen? <clears throat> it happens when we get specific, doesn't it? This doesn't happen when we don't say anything or don't do anything different than anybody else. It happens around one issue or another. I can tell you it's happened to me over the issue of alcohol so many times. Because I have a personal conviction that God has led me to avoid alcohol. And I feel that I would be disobeying his guidance for me were I to partake. The pressure to conform began when I was very young. And I'm not here to convince anyone else about this, okay? Notice I said it's a personal conviction. But I can tell you I felt like the only one many times just over that. Do you have anything about you that wouldn't be that way except for Jesus? Whatever that is, it probably makes you feel like the only one. But see, from our text today, the point is that you are not the only one. Even in my specific example of alcohol, I'm not the only person of faith ever to decide that abstinence is the best policy. And even though I have often felt alone in this, I was never alone. I need to remember the cloud See, even in the great cloud of witnesses, or what we've been referring to as the roll call of faith, several of the people specifically listed there did not drink alcohol. As a part of their faith walk, they did not. John the Baptist did not drink. As a part of his Nazarite vow, Samson did not drink. The Levitical priesthood, probably including Moses, a son of Levi, did not drink. In fact, there have been many in the cloud of witnesses who have held this same conviction and who have made this same decision as a part of their faith walk. 
This encourages me in my faith. What about you? How do you feel alone in your faith? What position or decision or commitment or belief or way of living makes you feel alone? Maybe you feel like the only one who isn't experimenting with drugs. The only one who's committed to sexual purity before marriage. Through marriage. You know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It's okay to be unpure after you're married. No, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Maybe you feel like the only one who won't watch certain movies or, or maybe it's certain video games everybody's playing. But because of your walk with Christ, you know you don't need to be playing. The only one who tries to dress modestly, as the Bible says we should. Do you ever feel like the only one who's really honest? You know, not trying to look better than you are. Maybe you feel like the only one who cares enough about abortion. Or about the homeless population or some other area that you have a special strong conviction about? Do you feel like the only one who believes God actually created the world the way the Bible says he did? The only one who rejects the idea that we came from lower life forms. I could go on half a day about the ways that walking by faith, particularly in this culture and even sometimes in the church, leaves people of true and potent faith feeling alone. But see, the whole point here is that you're not alone. If nothing else, I want you to hear that today. When you walk by authentic faith, powerful, life-changing, difference-making faith in God, even in specific ways according to specific convictions, you are not alone. There's so great a cloud of to-the-death testimony that surrounds us. There's this historical witness of those who have lived full throttle for God and stood out from the crowd in their faith just as you are seeking to do. And fellow believer, wouldn't you rather be like these great witnesses of our faith than to be like Freddie or Teddy or Jenny or Sally? You'd rather be like Abraham and Moses and the apostle Peter and Clement of Rome and Augustine and Ambrose and Galileo and Newton and Pascal and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and John Adams and maybe some of your own grandparents or great-grandparents who were faithful followers of Christ than these others you know who maybe are not actually walking by faith, wouldn't you? You'd rather be like the faithful And you'd rather be counted with them. So remember, remember their witness. We should be encouraged and inspired by this multitude of individuals who've been faithful before us. As I've said, there's still room in the roll call of faith for your name and for mine. What a fantastic life goal it would be to make the list. And don't sell yourself short. Don't be fatalistic or mediocre because if you have trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, then that means God is with you. And by His Spirit, He even lives within you. He is all you need to join the cloud someday, to make the lists, to be considered faithful to the last by God. He's all you need, and He is there.
Now, let's get back to our text. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and we're going to get some action steps that we need to take to really live this way. We're going to get to the part that comes after the sense we are surrounded. In other words, we're going to talk about what it is that we need to be inspired by these people to actually do. After a whole chapter reminding us of what other faithful men and women have done for God, and after pointing out that these and others form something like a vast cloud of inspiration for us, the writer of Hebrews concludes this section on faith by telling us plainly what we in the church today are to do. He gives us three very specific directives. Are you ready for your marching orders? All right, from chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we are to strip, we are to run, and we are to focus. The order is important because this is actually a three-step process for running the race of faith. You heard me right. Step one is to strip. Now, let me give you context before anyone starts doing anything inappropriate in the church house this morning. Our text says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Someone might think using the word strip is gratuitous here or unnecessarily provocative when in fact this is precisely the imagery the inspired author is getting at. The overall picture of this passage is that of a race. I do think the image of the cloud of witnesses is meant to symbolically convey a picture of spectators who are cheering on an important race. Even though I don't think this is meant in a literal way, as if they were literally watching, still part of the idea here is to honor the memory of those who have gone before us, to honor their testimony in our faith, and that's appropriate. Now, history tells us that in the Greco-Roman games of this time period, the runners ran essentially naked. Why? Well, because they wanted to win. They, that's why they stripped. Those who ran to win were not going to be held back by anything that may have slowed them down. FYI, they didn't have spandex or nylon or anything of that nature, so it was pretty much run naked or run in a toga. And folks, togas were just not very good for running, okay? The weight of their clothes and the wind-catching nature of the robes that were their common garb meant that runners needed to first strip before the, the race. In fact, anyone trying to run in clothes at that time would have been laughed right out of the Colosseum. Everyone knew such a person who had no chance of winning the race. Today, too many Christians are trying to run the race without stripping first. But again, before anyone does anything uncouth, in our case, we're not talking about clothes. What are we talking about? Well, our text is explicit in mentioning two very specific things to strip. First of all, we need to strip away every encumbrance. Strip away every encumbrance. Now, what is an encumbrance? An encumbrance is something that gets in the way. And here we're talking about the race of life, right? So the idea is to get rid of anything and everything that slows you down and keeps you from winning God's race. What is the definition of winning? According to the text we've been studying, what was the definition of winning for the cloud of witnesses? Winning was and is all about faith. With God, winning is about actually living by faith. And take note that this faith is to be lived out right in the middle of all the regular stuff of life. 
And so this directive does not necessarily mean you have to get rid of every non-spiritual or non-religious or non-church part of your life. No, but it does mean you need to get rid of anything that gets in the way or that in any way encumbers your faith walk with God. So the question is, does this thing or that thing get in the way for you? Does it? You may not need to throw your TV out the window. You may not need to stop playing golf. You may not need to stop playing video games. You may not need to stop reading fiction. You may not need to stop listening to talk radio or watching the news on TV. You may not need to quit all your hobbies. You may not need to stop drinking coffee or eating fried chicken. Then again, you may need to stop any or all of those things if any of them get in the way or cause the slightest resistance in your race of faith. It all depends on whether those things are an encumbrance to your faith in God or not. The point of me listing out a few examples, real examples of potential encumbrances to get you to actually be willing to really think about this. But of course, I could have listed many other possibilities. I personally haven't decided to completely strip off any of the things I mentioned. Yet, but it doesn't hurt for me to periodically think through whether or not any of those things are an encumbrance. And if I determine that something is slowing me down, and if I want to win, then whatever it is needs to get stripped. So how do you know when something needs to go? How do you know when something is an encumbrance? Well, you need to quiz yourself. Does this thing dominate my thoughts? Does it keep my mind off of God and the things of God? Does it make me look like a hypocrite to the watching world? Does it hurt my testimony, my witness? Does it fill up every moment when I might have thought to pray? Does it help me in my race of faith or slow me down? Does it squelch my faith or does it help my faith have room to grow? If your mind is filled with video games like you're still playing, Yes, I know how that is. Instead of the things of Christ, maybe video games need to go or maybe you're playing way too much. Maybe for some of you older folks, it's too much cribbage or dominoes or Sudoku. I don't know. I'm not that old yet, but whatever it is. <laughs> for others, maybe you need to think about your love for sports. <gasps> either playing or watching. If you don't think sports can become an encumbrance, you aren't tracking with me this morning. If you're choosing sports over church, don't tell me sports isn't an encumbrance to your walk with Christ. Sorry, that's just bull-loney. You're running with the toga on. You'll run better if you leave it behind. Here's another way to know if something's an encumbrance to your race with Christ. Ask yourself whether or not you could or would put it down if God asked you to do so. What if that thing you love so much might actually be an encumbrance? Will you lay it down for a while to find out? Or will you keep lugging it around like a runner carrying a bowling ball in his shorts? If you feel like you can't live without it, that's a pretty good indication that it may be an encumbrance to your race of faith. Maybe you're wondering if I ever practice what I'm preaching. 
The answer is yes. There have been many times in my life when I've stripped off an encumbrance, sometimes just for a while to get balance back, sometimes for good. There was a time in my life when I fasted from golf for a year. At that time, it was hard because it just became too important for me. I picked it up again later. It wasn't a problem. These days, I just don't want to pay for it. <laughs> but there have actually been many times in my life when I stripped off one encumbrance or another. It's a choice we need to be ready to make if we really want to keep God first. So let me ask you, is there anything in your life Anything at all that is an encumbrance to your faith? Is there anything slowing you down and keeping you from running your race to win? If so, you need to strip it off. Friends, you need to shed that thing like Obra sheds pounds when she stops eating so much bread. I'm just saying. There was a commercial. There was a commercial. You probably had to see it. If you want to run the race of faith in the same way as the great cloud of witnesses, so that you might someday have a witness like they do, well, you'll need to de-encumbrance yourself. Do you have the faith to make a sacrifice that will actually give you a better life in the end? I encourage you to strip off those things that hinder, those things that impede. Strip off those things that resist you as you run and leave them right there at the starting block. Secondly, to run to win, we need to strip away sin. It's a little easier to understand, but sometimes even harder to do. Look back at our text where it says, let us lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Can you imagine trying to run a race with your shoelaces tied together? That's kind of what we look like when we try to run the race of faith and live in sin at the same time. Not only do we find ourselves losing the race, but we look pretty stupid doing it. You know, I'd try to demonstrate, but I'd probably fall flat on my face. It's not going to work. What do we say? What do we say? We say, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Okay, that's true. None of us are perfect, but what does our text say? It says we need to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And while it would be best to lay aside all sin, of course, know that there is some sin that is more entangling than other sin. Maybe that sounds scandalous, but let's just employ a little bit of common sense. Besides, the Bible speaks of something called besetting sin. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Sin that is, is more of an ongoing habit than an oops if you will. Some have referred to this kind of sin as a stronghold. And I think that's also appropriate. While we all have areas we need to work on, I don't think all of us are always allowing these entangling kinds of sin to go on in our lives. The kind that severely impede our ability to run. While all sin can slow us down, obviously there are also areas of sin that can stop a faith runner in his or her tracks, making it almost impossible to get going at all. So, how do you know if this is the kind of sin you are dealing with in your own life. How do you know if you have this besetting or entangling kind of sin? How do you know if you have sin that's tying you up into knots until you really can't run the race of faith with any kind of success? How do you know? Well, let me just put it this way. You know. You're sitting there right now and you know. You know if that kind of sin is in your life. If you're a true Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and one of his primary roles is conviction. I don't need to convict you of sin because God is already doing it. I have faith in that fact. You know. 
right now without a whole lot of thought, whether or not you have this kind of ongoing entangling sin. You won't have to think up what the problem is. You'll just know. So what do you need to do about it if you are entangled by habits of sin in your life? You need to strip. You need to strip off that sin that's entangling you. And if you find that you've somehow put it back up again, pick it up again, you need to strip it off again. And again, and again, you need to keep doing this until you've stripped it off so many times that you'd rather keep it off than have to go through stripping it again. Does that make sense? Too many Christians are still stuck somewhere around the starting blocks for one simple reason. They have not stripped off the sin that is entangling them. Again, this is not to say you can simply decide to be perfect from day one. Part of the race itself is finding out there are more and more things that need to be thrown aside as you run. But listen, there are sins that are so pervasive that they keep you from moving forward at all. Your laces are tied together. You simply can't run until you get untangled. Why haven't you gone anywhere in your walk with Christ? Could it be that you just haven't been willing to lay aside certain entangling sins? To be clear, you're going to have a lot of trouble figuring anything else out in your Christian journey until you deal with encumbrances and sin, okay? I can't tell you, that's step one, you know? I mean, once you're saved, okay? I can't tell you how many people struggle to go anywhere with God just because they won't let him help them get this done. Some folks are like the NASCAR driver who was trying to run his races with a, pulling a big steel box behind him. His pit crew kept trying different tires and different gear ratios and different engines and transmissions, but he just kept losing every race. He began to feel that maybe racing wasn't for him. In fact, he thought maybe NASCAR was really a hoax. There was just no way these other guys could be going so fast and doing so well. Or maybe the NASCAR God had forsaken him. Then again, maybe he just needed to unhitch the big steel box he'd been dragging around behind him so that he could experience the exhilaration of running a race without encumbrance or entanglement. Step one in the race of faith is to strip. If you skip the step, good luck getting through the first lap without ever uh, being severely slowed down or totally tripped up. Here's a good Christian phrase you can remember. Remember. Uh, maybe don't tweet this uh, out of context, but here, this is just for you. You can't win until you strip, okay? Now, step two is to run. Run. Our text says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Again, there are two parts to this step. So first of all, we simply need to run the race. Some of you need to get it that there's a race to run. When you became a Christian, you signed up for a race. Did you, did you get that part? Some people seem to think their job is to sit in the stands and criticize the other runners instead of getting their rear in gear and running their own race. If there's one thing we should have learned from our spiritual ancestors, it's that faith isn't faith until it's lived out. How exactly are you putting your faith into action? When the gun goes off and it already has gone off, you will need to actually start running. Newsflash, those who never leave the starting blocks typically do not win, typically do not win or even finish the race. And they also miss out on the experience of the race. Are you standing around complaining at the starting blocks? Maybe you just need to shut up and start running. The Apostle Paul put it this way, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. 
Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we an imperishable. Isn't it kind of weird to think that we need to be told to run our race to win? Run in such a way that you will win, Paul says. Well, duh. I mean, what does he think we're doing here? Running in place? Running in circles? Running backwards? Yeah, okay, sometimes that's accurate. We simply don't run to win. So what does this running to win look like? Well, it looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control for starters. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Running the race also looks like speaking the truth in a loving way. That's novel. Making sacrifices to help others. Looks like going into all nations and making disciples of Christ, teaching them to obey His commands, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Running to win looks like doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, loving our neighbors as ourselves. The race looks like doing for the least of these that which we would do for Christ. The race looks like sacrificing our own kingdom for the sake of advancing God's kingdom on earth. Running the race looks like sharing the gospel that everyone can be saved from the consequences of sin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The race looks like working hard at everything we do as though we are working for the Lord and not for men, bringing God glory by the way we live our lives. The race involves fervent prayer and heartfelt worship and hiding God's word in our hearts so we won't sin against him and so that it's there when we need to speak his truth to those who need to hear it. The race looks like a man or a woman truly following Christ in real choices and behavior and character and word and action and thought and mission and impact. The race looks like someone finding every way possible to show the unseen God to the world by his or her own faith in him. Some of us just really need to start running that race to win. Now look back at our text from Hebrews 12 where it not only says let us run, but it says let us run with endurance. That's the second part of running. We need to run with endurance. Throughout the message today, we've talked about a race. I'd be willing to bet that most of you pictured a sprint. Am I right? I mean, that's just where we default. A race is a sprint in our minds. You were likely thinking of launching out of the starting blocks as fast as you could, and you thought the finish line was in sight. But when it comes to the race of faith, that's not accurate. The race of faith is more of a marathon than a sprint. Really, it's lifelong. Anyone who knows anything about running a marathon knows that a steady pace works a whole lot better than spurts and sputters. We need to pace ourselves. We need to crank through those moments when we want to quit or start walking. Just keep running. We need to understand that this race of faith is a lifelong journey that can only be completed by a long-term steady commitment to gut it out. When I think about endurance as it pertains to the race of faith, I think commitment is the key word. Commitment is always necessary for endurance to have a chance. Whether we're talking about our marriages, our church relationships, perhaps our education, maybe a job we don't love, a challenging illness, winters in the PNW, <laughs> or any other thing that is hard to make it through 
You'll never make it to the finish line without rock-solid commitment. It's almost nauseating, isn't it? Endurance. But don't worry, the nausea will pass and the endorphins will kick in once you prove your own commitment to yourself. Yes, I used to be a runner and uh, I ran several half marathons over 13 miles each, so I know what I'm talking about. Now, I think step three in the race of faith will help us run with endurance, so let's move on with it. After we strip and start running, in order to keep running with endurance, we'll need step three, and that is to focus. Focus. Our text continues, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We've all heard the phrase, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe you didn't realize this actually comes from the Bible. And doing so is a crucial part of walking by faith. But what does it really mean to keep our eyes on Jesus? It's kind of a hard concept to define, and yet I can say this. If you've ever been focused on Christ in your life, you know it when you're not, right? I mean, isn't it kind of amazing that most of us know what this means intuitively? What a crazy thing to say if you don't know, right? It really makes no logical sense to say, hey, just keep your eyes on Jesus. I can't see Jesus. So what does it mean? I really don't know how to explain that very well, honestly, but the cool thing is that most of you already know. Somehow you know. For a believer, there's just something intuitive about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We know when we're doing this and we know when we're not doing it. That in itself is encouraging to my faith. Having said that, I'll try to paint the picture a little further for those who maybe are not as clear on what it means. What does it mean to focus on Jesus? Let me put it this way. When I'm focused on the teachings of Jesus, I'm less selfish. Why? Because unselfishness is what we learn from him. When I'm focused on the reality of Jesus, I do the right thing. Why? Because I know he's there to help me. When I'm focused on the presence of Jesus, I pray throughout my day. Why? Because I'm realizing that he's right there with me and that he is listening. When I'm focused on the cross of Jesus, I feel loved and challenged at the same time. Why? Because he bled and died for me and paid the price for my sin so that I could live for him. When I'm focused on the truth of Jesus, I look forward to reading his word. Why? Because his truth sets me free. When I'm focused on the power of Jesus, I have the faith to do things differently. Why? Because in his power, I can make a real difference. And here's the way I would wrap this all up. When I'm focused on myself, None of those things are true. See, everything changes when my focus moves from self to Christ. Everything. So how do I really get focused on Jesus? How do I fix my eyes on him? Well, most of us have different tools that help us get closer to God, but the important thing is to employ those tools. How do you focus on Jesus? For some, it's worshipful music. Okay, when's the last time you got alone and listened and had that personal worship that you know happens for you? Only through music. For others, it's the great outdoors. 
Okay, get out there and make sure you're thinking about the Lord, not just the fish or whatever else. For some, it might even be a particular kind of setting, maybe a place that's especially serene or or artistic, or beautiful. Physical places can help people focus on God. Okay, so get out there and take the time. Some focus by listening to sermons on the radio. Okay, do that. And please do not compare me to that guy who was one of the best preachers in the world, or else he wouldn't be on the radio. How else can we focus on the Lord? Simply reading the Bible probably has the most potential to help put our eyes in the right place. I would say this is the living word. Jesus is in this book. He's all the way through it, everywhere. You can bring the Bible into some of the other methods that I mentioned as well. But what about just being in church every Sunday? Can you honestly tell me that you're as focused on Christ when you aren't consistently in His church? Maybe you can, but most would agree that consistent church attendance is helpful when it comes to your focus. So there are many different tools that can help you focus on Christ. But for those tools to matter, you'll need to make use of them. Also there in verse 2, our text tells us that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. As we run, we need to stay focused on this important aspect of the identity of Christ. He is the starter and the finisher of our faith. We are spiritually dead without Christ. He takes the first step toward us. Faith is our response to what he is doing. He is the author of our faith. That has been clear in this series because it's clear in the book of Hebrews. But here in chapter 12, verse 2, we learn that Jesus also perfects or completes our faith. We've been talking about running our race, but here's the balance. Running our race, that's the words he used, but here's the balance. We must keep firmly in mind that Christ completes our faith within us. He does it. He runs both in and through us, as is the case consistently in Scripture. We see here again what I call the divine partnership. There's always our part, and there's always God's part. But right now, as we think about focusing on Christ, focus on the fact that He is the author and finisher of your faith. The race is His. We are simply along for the ride. So theologically, here at the end of what we'll cover today, don't miss the fact that we're not in this race alone. Not only do we have the testimony of those who have gone before, but we have the Spirit of Christ inside us. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, one final word. The last little bit of our text today reminds us that during his time on earth, Jesus ran the race of faith as well. His example is supreme above all the other examples we've been learning from. Verse 2 says, who for the joy set before him. What was that joy? Joy that he knew we would be saved. Joy that he could save us. For the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Folks, we do have an awesome cloud of witnesses who have already run the race before us, but Jesus ran his race better than any of them. What do we see in his example? Looking at his life, we see that Jesus was free not only from sin, but from any other encumbrance that could have entangled him. His focus was on God the Father. His eyes were always upward, crossing the finish line for Jesus, men enduring the cross for us. Having won his race decisively, he was resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God. He won the prize. He received the crown. How did Jesus do it? One last time, he stripped himself of every encumbrance. He ran his race to win, enduring even to the point of death, 
And even as God in human form, Jesus focused on God the Father as he ran. These three steps in repeated succession, strip, run, focus, are really what it means to live the life of faith that God has called us to live. I wonder which part of this hits you where you are. Are you still needing to lay some things down or you just need to start running? Maybe you run a little here and a little there, but need to learn the art of focus so that you can endure and keep a steady pace. Whatever it is, I hope you'll make the tough choices because you only have one life to live. And Jesus came so you could live it to the fullest. I want to close by simply reading this awesome text one more time. Let it sink in. The Bible says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Church family, let's pray that God helps us successfully run the race of faith that is set before us, both as individuals and as a church. Pray with me. Lord, help us to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. I pray your spirit is speaking that we uh, would hear some action steps to take. Where do we need to strip off an encumbrance or sin? Where do we need to just keep running? Where do we need to run with more intentionality to try to win? And, and maybe it's just that focus piece. Just really keeping our eyes on you, Jesus, and remembering your example and remembering that you are the one who helps us to have faith in the first place and you're the one who completes our faith. You're the one at work within us. And just to keep that in mind and just constantly remember that you're working and just be constantly submitting to what you're doing in us. Wherever a person finds themselves today, Lord, I pray that even in this moment, commitments would be made to you to make that change, to make that shift. And Lord, for anyone here today, and I would say there are probably always those here today, every Sunday, who never really gave their heart to you. There's so many ways that we talk about salvation, but there are also so many ways that we sort of consider ourselves saved when maybe nothing ever really happened. So for somebody today, I pray that today might be a, a, a turning point. Um, a decision, an empowered choice that as you're drawing, someone would respond today and that someone would have the, the amazing experience of knowing that you've come into their life and that you're never going to leave them alone and you're never going to forsake them and that their life is going to change and you're going to help them become a true follower of Jesus and that even when they feel like the only one they can know there's a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before. And that you, the author and perfecter of their faith, are even within them. 
I pray somebody takes step one today, which really is before any of this, and that is just trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, just surrendering to Him, turning away from everything else, throwing it all in on Jesus. Maybe it's today for somebody. I pray so, and I pray for that person that they'll um, profess their faith. It's so important. Your word is so clear. We need to do that. Maybe just at first, just even to me, or even just writing it on a response card, or going to the back here in a minute and telling the person in the back that's there to pray with, yeah, today's the day. It's so important to take that step. So God, help us wherever we're at to make the decisions and the changes that we need to make. And we trust you to change us. It's really your work in us. Let us surrender to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.go.com gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.